0: here, and it's so, so good to have you with us, uh, enjoying Christmas Eve with us. And during Advent this year, Advent is a phrase that means coming or arrival. We celebrate the, the coming of Christ and His first Advent. And in this Advent, we've been looking at Mark chapter 1 and today, Mark chapter 2, and looking at His kingship. We've been looking at the idea of, let earth receive her king. It says in Mark one fifteen. The time is fulfilled, this is Jesus, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And this morning, in spite of the fact that we won't be looking at a passage that will be talking about his birth, we're going to be looking at the implications of what it means for Christ to come as king, and for his kingdom, the kingdom of God, in its fullness, in a sense, to come to us. What What was the arrival? What was this kingdom like? What was it supposed to bring? And we see in This passage this morning, one of the most complete pictures of what what the the good news of Jesus is meant to bring to us. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. It's found in your bulletin, and it'll be on the screen as well. It says this, and when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, glorifying God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. My favorite verse of any Christmas hymn comes from Joy to the World, and we just sang it. I think that's my favorite Christmas hymn, and I truly believe this is my favorite verse of any of the hymns, and it's it's this verse. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And this is my favorite line of any Christmas hymn because it's talking about the reason and the purpose of the coming of Jesus Christ and the coming of his kingdom. Incarnation. Is what we're talking about. His coming incarnation. That word incarnation means in the flesh. Think concarne. God with us. And the reason that Jesus was born so that he would bring his blessing as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. Where is the curse found? <laughs> what curse are we talking about? Are we talking about Harry Potter? I mean, what what on earth are we talking about we're talking about the curse of sin that entered the world in genesis 3 with with humankind's fall to placing ourselves into a place only god should be and since then all of the ramifications and implications of that fall and the curse that has affected everything as far as the curse is found where is the curse found Just this morning, when I got up, like most mornings, I I look at the news, and and I'm looking at the New York Times, and purposely this morning to saying, as I open up the front page of the paper, I'm expecting to find news about the curse being found, and sure enough, as I open up the front page, this is what I see, brokenness in immigration, displaced people who have no home, evidence of the curse, a story about ISIS and terrorism. Several stories, multiple, about harassment in the workplace. Still, story after story after story. The curse. More tension between the U.S. and North Korea. A story about children being abused. It goes on and on. I looked through the whole front page. I could find no story about joy, no story about hope or healing or goodness. I only saw evidence of the curse all over the front page of the New York Times. As far as the curse is found. In your own life, in your own imagination, for a moment, I want you to think about, like, where is an example of the curse in your own life? Where's an example of the curse that you've experienced? Maybe the death of a loved one just this year. The curse. Maybe you're dealing with sickness. Maybe you're dealing with disease. Maybe somebody you love is. The curse. All of these events in the world, all these things that are, that are surrounding us, these are examples of the fall of brokenness, of sin. And Jesus comes, it says, in his coming kingdom. What I love in, in Mark 1.15, it says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then immediately after that, you see evidence of the kingdom of God breaking out into the lives of real people, everyday people like you and me. The sick are healed. People who are oppressed by evil are are free, kingdom of God is manifest because the king was there, and where Jesus went in his earthly life, we see the kingdom of God breaking forth, and today in chapter 2 of Mark, even though it's not a very Christmassy passage, we see sort of the fullness or the culmination of what Jesus Christ came to bring in his incarnation, and that is the forgiveness of our sins, forgiveness, when you sense that somebody has not forgiven you, there is a relational pressure and a weight that just weighs over you. When you believe somebody, somebody you love powerfully, does not forgive you, it has not released you from something, it tears you up inside, does it not? A few years ago, my dear wife Becky, she wrote an email to a friend. My wife Becky, she is a prolific emailer. Like, so if you've received an email from her, they tend to be long. I mean, it, it could be anyway, I'll I'll leave it there. I'm going to be in trouble on Christmas Eve. So she she is a prolific emailer, but she wrote this email to a good friend, and it was a personal email. It was a heartfelt email, and it was a longer one, but it was one of those communications where when you press send, you expect to get a response quickly. It was so personal. Uh, What she was sharing was so deep and profound. She expected a response immediately from this dear friend. If not An email, certainly probably even a phone call because it was that personal and that powerful. But days turned into weeks and there was no response. And she began to say to me, like, I don't know why this person is not responding back. I don't know why they have not emailed back. And it began to weigh on her. I could see in her countenance the sense that she had that this person held something against her. She was racking her brain. For days she kept saying to me, I don't know what I could have done to this person. I don't know what I might have said or what I've done, but she just felt unforgiven by this person because of this lack of the response of the email. But finally, we found out that the cause of the lack of response was the fact that her husband, this other guy's husband, had given her the wrong email address for this person. And so it wasn't an unforgiving thing at all. But as soon as Becky found out that this person was not holding something against her, I literally could see a weight coming off her. But what if you, and this is true of many of you, Carry around a pervasive sense that God does not forgive you and that your sins are not forgiven and that your brokenness, and we see evidence of the fall all around us, and it's very easy just to point outside of ourselves and say, there's evidence of the fall, and there's evidence of the curse, but the reality is if we look within our heart deep enough, we see evidence of it even in our own lives, in our selfishness, in the way that we live our lives, not loving God as much as we love ourselves, not loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, and we see that, and if we're honest about that, we live with that, and if you live with a foreboding sense that God has not forgiven you, it is a weight that rests upon you. Christ has come to bring his blessing wherever the curse is found. Now, I'm excited to tell you about this story this morning. The last time Jesus was in Capernaum, he had healed Simon's mother-in-law and upon healing her, news got out in this small town about this healing, and the entire town, in essence, came to that household, and anybody that was sick, anyone that had a disease, anyone who had any issue at all, came to him, and it says in Mark 1 that Jesus healed them. Now, imagine living in this small town, and the vast majority of the people that had any issue at all, whether they were dealing with evil, it says in the text, or whether they were oppressed by something, or whether they had sickness, they went to the house and they experienced healing. And then they went back into the town and they talked about, look what Jesus did for me. Look at the healing I experienced. Look at the shalom, the, the, whole, the wholeness and healing I am now experiencing. But there's this one man who did not make it there that day. A paralytic. And I want you to think about his experience and the emotion he must have felt being the one guy who did not make it to uh, this household to be healed when Jesus was there. And then Jesus leaves. He leaves town and he's gone. And while he's gone, this man has got to be saying to himself, I missed my opportunity to be whole again, to be healed. And now word gets to him that Jesus is back at the same house. And there are these four men, these friends of his, that do everything they can to get him to this place where Jesus is. Oh, that we would all have friends like this, these four men. They get this man. He can't walk. He is a paralytic. He's unable to move, and they, I don't know if it's 100 yards or 20 feet or a mile or five miles, but they take this man to the home where Jesus is, and imagine how tired they would be after getting there And how frustrating it would be upon arriving where Jesus is teaching in the home and it's so crowded they can't even get through the door because of the crowd right so what do they do (laughs) in spite of being tired and sweaty and, and having taken a grown adult man as long as they did to this place they get him on the roof of this building Now, this is an ancient structure. It's probably made of of grass, and it's kind of like a concrete material and so forth, but it's like a thatched roof perhaps. We don't know, but they get him on this roof, this four men. Jesus is teaching. Now, imagine what it's like to be in that audience as you are sitting here right now, and we're sitting here, and somebody's teaching, and imagine if we heard footsteps on this warehouse ceiling, and all of a sudden we saw concrete and 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 so forth coming through and and all the stuff that's up there. And I've seen them put this all together. I know what's up there, and all of a sudden it's starting to come down. We would all be a little surprised, right? And I might even be a little annoyed, like, what's going on? I'm trying to teach up here, and who's up on the roof? But I love Jesus' reaction. When they finally tear open the roof of this house, and it literally says they unroofed the house, and they lower this man, these four men, into his presence. And it says that Jesus saw their faith. I guess they did. He saw their faith. They just knew that if they could get this man into the presence of Christ, and that if he would see him, he would heal him. But when Jesus sees the man, lowered into the roof, on his bed, coming down, he doesn't say what you would expect him to say. What do you expect him to say? Get up and walk. You're healed. Instead, Jesus says to him, My son, your sins are forgiven. Literally saying, My son, your sins are sent away. And if I'm this man, I'm glad for that comment, but part of me also would be saying, But I want to walk, right? I've come here to be healed. Now, Some people in the audience are appalled because how can a man, a human being, say your sins are forgiven? And and the implication is clear. The scribes get it correctly. Jesus is implying to say that he is God. Who else can say declaratively, your sins are forgiven? And then Jesus says in response, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? Which is easier, by the way? It'd be much easier, I think, from our perspective to say your sins are forgiven. That's not verifiable. That's, can't prove that. I can tell you as a, a pastor, you know, in the name of Christ, your sins are forgiven, but if you're a paralytic, much more difficult for me to say get up and walk, right? You can prove whether that's taking place or not, but Jesus seems to imply that saying your sins are forgiven is much, much more difficult. Jesus then says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, take your bed, and go home. Jesus does that which is easier, heal the body, to prove that he has the authority to do that which is much more difficult, which is forgive our sin. Now, ultimately, it was more difficult for Jesus to forgive his sin, our sin, The cost was enormous. And those words that he spoke that day is ultimately what led to his arrest and trial and so forth was he's declaring to be God and he means to say so. But on the cross, when Jesus was being crucified, he cried out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, as he is laying down his life for our sin. Jesus is the Son of God. He'd always lived in a perfect relationship with God the Father. He's the only human being since Adam and Eve who lived in perfect peace and a right relationship with God. But in that moment, he is not reconciled to the Father. He is experiencing, because it says in Isaiah, which we'll read in just a moment, that our sin was placed on him. And so in that moment, he is separated from the Father and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? feeling forsaken. It says in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds were healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was the son, the incarnate son, But in this moment, he became an orphan in order that you might be called son or daughter of God. He was cursed that you might be blessed. He who knew no sin became sin in order that you and I might become the righteousness of God. The one who created life tasted death so that he may overcome it on our behalf. So why did Jesus tell this man his sins are forgiven instead of just healing him? What is the root cause of disease, death, decay? It's sin, the fall, the curse. Jesus's priorities were to heal us as far as the curse is found, and at the very core of the curse is this problem of our sin. And Jesus would not just leave our symptoms alone, but he comes to undo the curse of sin. He wouldn't just heal the the symptoms only, but to deal with the cause itself. He came to break the back of sin and death and decay. And when Jesus sees this man's faith, he called him son, and he assured him that his sins are forgiven. In the original text, it literally means in in present tense, it means once and for all action that has continuing effect going forward. Your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. He calls him son, my son. Your sins are forgiven. How much of a weight is it (laughs) when we feel unforgiven by somebody? What a joy it is to know that your sins are forgiven, that you're released, that you're free. My friends, how much we need to hear Jesus' voice this morning, God's voice, say to us My daughter, your sins are forgiven. My son, your sins are forgiven. And I loved that as this man is being lowered, he doesn't say, Jesus, forgive me. He doesn't say, I have faith in you. He doesn't say a word. It's just the mere act of his faith of being lowered through a hole was enough for this man's sin to be forgiven. Just a mustard seed of faith is all that is required to hear the voice of Christ say, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Tradition says that when King George II heard the hallelujah chorus by Handel, he stood in honor of the king of kings and the Lord of Lords, and in that Messiah, the Great Handles Messiah, he reflects on Revelation eleven five, and it says this in Handles Messiah: the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord. That the kingdom of God is coming, and that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. The kingdom of God is going to come, and as far as the curse is found. Jesus there will bring his blessing and undo the effects of the curse and the fall wherever it is found. Not only are sins forgiven, nothing less than that, but the full redemption of the world. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever, forever and ever. Hallelujah. And in the Hallelujah Chorus, it says it over and over again. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Jesus is the King. And I'm so thankful that His kingdom will overcome the kingdom of this world and all of its brokenness and fallenness and sin and shame. And that you and I can know, leaving here today, that whether you feel like it's Christmas or not, whether you're experiencing the emotion of Christmas or not, that the full reality of his coming kingdom, you can hear his voice say to you, my son, your sins are forgiven. My daughter, your sins are forgiven. And to hear also that Jesus, Christ as the son of man, has the authority to forgive sin. Let's pray.